0: Good morning. H- Hello out there, everybody. Oh <laughs> Yeah. Welcome to the original Loretta Brown show. Pumpkin? I know. You okay, pumpkin. Last week I was out, I had a swollen face, abscess tooth. Was not a pretty Wasn't it... me. Yeah, I wasn't pretty. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you're in radio.
0: I am on radio, that's right. However, we do sort have of. the uh studio. Yeah, cam but
1: for... we could put up like a screenshot of something <laughs> else there to to could avoid you?
0: I have Maybe. A, I have ideas I about know. that. Eric and
1: I are still working on okay, it. Okay,
0: okay. Yeah. I love that. So, um, you know, when I grew up, we watched the Jetsons, and I always have this joke yeah. about how they had that face they would put on before they would talk to each other on their um, – because they had video phones, right? They oh, had FaceTime. Yeah. I know, but they'd look horrible. They were the pioneers of yeah. FaceTime,
1: right, literally. <laughs>
0: yeah, but I think about that every now and then, like, where's my – mask or whatever they used to do anyway for those of you that watch the jetsons i hope you're appreciating what i'm saying anyway it's very spacey and i think that's why i live in seattle because so i'm space trying to needle.
1: oh so it was the year 2062 that's yeah. basically when they said it i had to look it up because i didn't is know is that right yeah but I didn't know that, that means we're way ahead of them oh, except we for are. flying cars but i mean like oh, yeah. the facetime type stuff like you know yeah. with cameras
0: and I wanted the flying Southwest. cars, and I also wanted the conveyor belt that they got onto that got him ready. Oh right? yeah, you know George Jetson, and they'd be brushing his teeth, <laughs> and combing his hair. I don't know where that came from this morning, you guys. I'm just. I think it's great. My my brain's rambling. Anyway, I am Loretta Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Welcome to the original Loretta Brown Show. Radio to open the heart, heal the soul, awaken the consciousness, and I hope help you come to a place of more kindness to yourself. And um, Halloween's coming up. you got your Halloween costume figured out? I
1: am building it as we <gasps> speak. I'm about 75% done with it. Ooh. I've got more uh, stuff that I had do. To... I can't wait. Yeah.
0: I can't wait. Well, you'll probably outdo me, but our, our radio show is on Halloween next week. So Yeah,
1: so back. I will definitely be wearing it. Yes. Or it'll be here.
0: Okay, in the background. I got
1: I got like mad dash of like six days left to build. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ahead of my game here. Yeah. And I have to go... I don't know. If everyone's already listened to Benny and already in the last few uh, you know, weeks and stuff like that, this is a three peat. I've won back to back here at the station. We have a huge party and I've won the last two years in a row. Wow. So I'm going for the three peat. So I have to come <laughs> full correct. And on if this.
0: I'm if I'm understanding correctly, competition is Oh, it's fierce. Fierce. Fierce around
1: here. Fierce around here. If you just here. show up with a t shirt and it says like, you know, like little chicks and magnets, like chick magnet, yeah. You might as well just walk away. <laughs> That's a good one too, if you're ever in a jam. I, I get, okay, it? Right. get it. Okay. All right. I got it. All
0: right. I do. <laughs> I do. Oh. I got it. Anyway, I'm looking forward to that and, <laughs> and you'll too. have to tune in next week to find out, right? Yeah. That's that's I'll even make a cameo. Oh, please do. Oh, I have to. Yeah, you have to. Mm-hmm. I think you do.
1: So no more swollen faces for you next
0: week. No, no, no. I'm done with that. Good. I'm all I'm all fixed up now. All right, good. And um, uh, anybody has that ever had a, a root canal? Uh, They're not fun. Yeah. yeah I, I send you all the sympathy in my heart uh, forever. <laughs> I give you a
1: lot of uh, like bravery in the sense you were going to do the show, yeah. and then you texted me later that night, and you're like, yeah, this is not going to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I
0: was going to go through with it, and I was like, no, this is not, I better not do yeah. this. Yeah.
1: Safe being yeah. safe.
0: Better take care of me, which is yeah. a great theme. And that's why we're here.
1: Mm-hmm. Gotta do that.
0: Yeah, sometimes we have to put ourselves first. Mm-hmm. Otherwise we got nothing to offer other people. Yeah. Or because... animals. They understand. They or get animals. it. Or animals. Everyone
1: get they yeah. get it.
0: Well, the animals are, are you know, like when you're down, they often are like, Oh, come I'll oh, come they sense lay it on you. Way faster I'll just people. lay on your face, Loretta. It'll be better. <laughs> Anyway, um, I, I am the owner of Reiki Oasis located right here in the greater Seattle area where are have been around for 24 years and do an awful lot of things to help people. I love what I do for a living. It is a true calling and um, yeah, it just comes from my heart tears, yeah. We are a listener supported show to every person who goes to patreon.com slash the Loretta Brown Show and you've donated even $1. You've donated a prayer. You've donated listening to the show. I appreciate it so much. You help keep us on the air. Airtime is not free and I just really appreciate it. At Reiki Oasis, we got some things coming up this Saturday, which is apparently the day after tomorrow because yeah. this is Thursday, right? It is. Yes, yeah. yes. 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 Um, I have my monthly class for women. We call it the Temple of the Divine Feminine And we have such a good time in there connecting our hearts and our souls. Um, We do a a lot of healing circles. We talk about ancient mysteries. We hang out with each other. We cry. We hold hands. And uh, if you want to be a part of it, go to schedule.reikioasis.com, sign up. And you can also send me an email at reikioasis at gmail.com. The idea is to uh, have a good time. It is a four-hour class, 12.30 to 4.30 on a Saturday. It is well worth your time. Take the time for you. Come out. It is for women only. Sorry, guys. And, um, I mean, I have other classes the guys can come to, but this one is just for the women. On Saturday, November 2nd, I have a Reiki 1 class for those of you that want to be introduced into the world of energy medicine. Reiki's been around for a long long time it's older than what you think and anybody can learn how to do it it's a wonderful thing it stems out of the idea that if you get hurt you know when a child gets hurt they get a boo-boo they run to their mommy or daddy and they say could you please kiss it right there's my boo-boo and clean it first yeah clean it first disinfect it yeah put on the magic then, band-aid yeah. just <laughs> The priorities. magic, yeah, the magic band or the, the boo-boo thing in the freezer, right? Put the boo-boo on there and uh, Wait, love what? it. No. The there's boo a- in the freezer? Well, there's a... Uh, oh, like an ice pack? Like an ice pack, yeah. Oh, I'm like, boo-boo. why would you stick
1: your, like, if you got, like, a little baby cut, why would you throw it in there? you like, that's not...
0: What? They have like, such cute wow. things for kids these days, Yes, this right? is true. Okay,
1: now I see where you're going from. Right, okay. yeah. Because I have one, too.
0: Okay, okay. It's like a little... Uh, yeah, gel. don't put the kid in the freezer. That's what I was saying. Please don't like, misunderstand why me. Would you do that? <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. We, we want to love them and comfort It's like them a little gel pack. I have yeah. one of those. Yeah, okay Yeah. Yeah, just you know, validate it and then kiss them and put on the magic band-aid and get back up and go f- keep going. Back at you know, don't get stuck on that. Yep. So anyway, we had a beautiful crystal bowl sound bath at Bala Yoga this past week. Really good turnout, very heartfelt. The next one is November seventeenth, seven thirty at Bala Yoga in Kirkland Kirkland. Please call Bali Yoga to get your tickets um, and reserve your seat. And I've gotta put this out there. I'm taking this amazing trip to Egypt. February 19th to March 4th we still have room available this is a very sacred special um, once again heart to heart talk we do float around on a private yacht we go up and down the Nile we go to the temples uh, we hang out we eat good foods we look at the stars and um, I only take a, a maximum of 12 people with me if you're interested please send me an email Uh, send it to ReikiOasis at gmail.com, send it to Loretta Brown, and we'll get you in on that trip. So don't hesitate, do it now. And I have such a wonderful guest today, and I want to get her on the show as quick as I can. I just want to say the smallest, briefest thing about astrology. And if you really want more info, send me an email. I'll send you the astrology report. But yesterday we slipped out of Libra. We're going into intense emotional Scorpio. And the only reason I'm bringing it up is because um, this this has a tendency to make people really uh, kind of nervous or grind their teeth or their stuff comes up. You know what your stuff is. I mean, some of you don't have stuff, right? Some of you do have stuff. I'm
1: perfect. So no.
0: I know. I got that. <laughs> I got it. All right. But this is an opportunity for you to just Exhale a little bit, go inside, do some of that internal work, and you could actually have an amazing breakthrough in, in your healing journey and your consciousness. Um, in those, and in, in going all the way down into the roots of what is it that's really behind this, and aren't you just really tired of that old story? I mean, really, let's have a new story, let's do something fresh and clean. And one word, I will be talking about this more next week, but on Halloween, Mercury does go retrograde in Scorpio. But I want to make a comment. Retrograde does not mean fall apart. It just means revisit, revisit. And it's going to help you, like I say, go to the very origins of your emotional reactions and beliefs from which your current mental state has evolved. So it is a time of transformative healing the ability to move forward, leave behind what you no longer need, which could be an attitude or a belief, and hopefully my guests will help you shift that today. There is hope at the end of the tunnel. Hang on to it. Keep going. I've always called myself the proverbial hope girl because somehow, no matter what, that hope has really saved my life. So today I am just thrilled, I'm delighted, and I'm honored To have Maria Nambu on my show, she's a gifted writer of her memoir series, The Dancing Soul Trilogy. In her books, Nambu invites us to face love, life with courage and love and look to the future with hope. Her books begin with her childhood as an orphan of mixed race in Tanzania raised by strict German nuns, could I say? She escapes a life void of love and affection and later thrives in, of all places, Minnesota. Her books together are called the Dancing Soul Trilogy, Africa's Child, America's Daughter, and Drumbeats Heartbeats. She is also the creator of a popular workout based on African dance, Aerobics with Soul, and I remember that, And Nambu has made sharing her love of Africa and its culture and rhythms the focus of her life. It is really such an honor to have you on the show, Nambu.
2: Thank you very much.
0: I have your books here, and I just want to tell people they are wonderful. Um, You've taken your memoirs and put them into three books. You have pictures in them, what I love those pictures, and... I just encourage people um to get the books now. Just get them. Um they're really, really great. Uh but Nambu, you know, I, I, I have to ask you, and this is probably a question you get asked a lot, what what led you to writing your memoirs? And I gotta ask, how long did it take you?
2: Oh <clears throat> I always say that uh the memoirs, my story, or this story, which is the story not only of, not only my story, of many other orphans, it just wanted to be written. The orf- orphanages, it existed, it doesn't exist anymore, the name is there, but it's a prestigious secondary school now, and uh, people went, I went just recently in, in January to give a talk, To the secondary school students, and they didn't know anything about the history of the place. But that is just one aspect. I felt there were so many of us there, and our story needed to be told. I feel everybody is on this world because for a reason, and we have a story, and we make a difference. And I did not want my life or the life of the people around me to just go unnoticed. I, I know the universe notices, you know, but I felt somehow I was chosen. I was spared. I was left behind to tell the story. So it was very tough for me to do it because, you know, when you tell the story, very often you have to kind of relive it. And it took me a long time. It took me really 25 years since I started. I kept writing and putting it down, writing and putting it away. But then after you know, I got married and I had children, and I I, I remembered how I, I wished I had a family when I was young and how I wished that I knew about my family, who they were, where they came from, what language they spoke, were they good. Uh, and... I decided I had to write, I had to finish my book. I had to tell my children. I wanted my children to really know me the way I never knew me, so I had to write my book. And there was there's so many lessons that I could teach them without saying anything, just having them read my story.
0: I, um, uh, like I said, I just really thank you for this book. I think it will touch every heart. Um, you're also, you're very vulnerable in this book. You're very honest. It is, yeah. um, it's direct. You're not hiding anything. You're bringing it right forward, which I think invites us to be the same way. You know, when you mm-hmm. shine your light out there, when you permit yourself to come out there, I, I really think it's an invitation for us to meet you there. Um, you begin your first book which covers your birth to leaving Africa for the United States, and I'm just going to quote here. A four-day-old infant of biracial parents was left at an orphanage and boarding school for mixed-race children founded by German Catholic nuns in a remote mountain region of Tanzania, East Africa. I was that child. I just have to stop because there is so much in that sentence those two sentences can you tell us a little bit about yourself and I I realize that's a big question Mm -hmm. but you you know like yeah I'm just gonna let you answer that
2: yeah I can tell you um, Mm -hmm. you know uh, at that time in in, um, when I was brought there in 1944 so a long time ago I always have to set the timing because people just don't believe you know that these things actually did happen i am now 76 years old but i was brought there when i was only three days old so i can really say i was born and raised in in a german catholic orphanage um you know at those days the mixed-race children were not wanted in the society the african mothers for the most part who, who mothered us hid us in the villages and the and the white man who fathered us just had nothing, they didn't even acknowledge us. So for the most part we were ostracized and some of them were really hidden in the villages. And I like to say that I, I've imagined them and I know quite a few lived and died without seeing the sun or feeling wind. Mm. Or just, just and I always say I'm so, so grateful that I was not one of them. I was taken to the orphanage, so my life was at the orphanage. You know, when word got out that there's a German order that came to Kifungilo or to Tanzania to start a home, an orphanage for mixed race children, word got out around the whole country and people came in every shape and size, boys and girls, you know, somewhere 20, somewhere 12, 15, 17, 25, every age came from all over. Even though many of them you know, had parents, their parents were you know, white and black parents, were legally married, loved their children, but unfortunately their children were also discriminated against the society. So now there was a place for us, and they brought us all there. So the big thing that happened in childhood, as you could read in the book, is that the bigger girls, the older girls, took care of the little ones. And meaning they did our grooming and prepared our food and did all sorts of things. As far as I can remember, I was always a, a little one. Unfortunately, for many reasons, the bigger girls who took care of them were extremely cruel. They, they really abused us in, in every way you can imagine, physically, mentally, sexually, psychologically, emotionally. I remember just being beaten every day of my life, sometimes not knowing why. The nuns, most of them really tried and they cared, but there were a few who were also very, very cruel, and I write about them too. So that was more or less the structure of the place. Yet deep in our hearts, we knew as tough as it was for us to live there and to go from day to day, it was the best place for us.
0: You know, um, that first book, you know, where you are getting beaten so much by, by the big girls... Um, it, it's, I'm just letting the readers know it is, it is very, um, open and to the point. Um, I, I had a question in the back of my mind, you know, with you being beaten, you had to have had marks on your body. Um, did the, did the nuns, were the nuns just not able to do anything about that and stop it? Or was it just the way that it was? The big girls were going to beat up the little girls.
2: We, the nuns, you know we, you know, we would turn black and blue, or we, even today I have some scars in my, you know, on my skin in certain places, but we didn't dare tell the nun that the big girls were beating us, because if we did, we would be beaten even more. And then so what we did when we were beaten and, and the nun in charge, Sister silvestris would ask us what happened. We would just make up all sorts of stories. We would say we fell out of bed or we were running and something hit us or we ran into a tree. We made up all sorts of stories because if we told on the big girls, we would be beaten even more. So, And I think, though, in the story you see some at some place, I finally tell the nun that the big girls beat us. And of course, we were really beaten after that. If you remember the chapter, yes, I do. So, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, and now the nun knew, and I was very surprised. I think I asked in the book. Now she knows that we are beaten, but she still did not do nothing, do anything. So I was afraid that, well, maybe big, maybe nuns were also afraid of the big girls. Maybe I, I did not understand as a child because very often they knew, they would just say, oh, don't do that, but. They didn't discipline them at the way they disciplined us if we did anything wrong. So whatever, no matter what happened, no matter how much you were beaten, you never said a word to anybody.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I get that. I was thinking when I was reading that that your story is is extreme. Uh there are a lot of people out there who as children were beaten or bullied or abused or something who never said for that very reason the fear of telling and the Mm -hmm. ramification of that yeah so as you were going through this you um they called you fat mary and why did they call you fat mary
2: yeah they (laughs) call me fat mary because (laughs) i was fat you know when you look (laughs) at the at the physique of of a little orphan in Africa, usually their skin and bone. But I was fat. I mean I was not fat but for the standards, I was fat. I was chunky. I think I took I I comforted myself by eating anything that came in my way. I would walk along the path and see a rotten banana peel with with sand or whatever and I would just remove the sand a little bit and I would eat it. I would see some berry or something hanging over there. Some dish that has not been cleaned well, I would lick it. I just ate all the time. So I became fat, and they called me Fat Mary. And I hated that name, Fat Mary. I absolutely hated that name. Every time they called me Fat Mary, I cried. Until one day, I decided, you know, the only thing I know about me was that I was fat. And I decided, I don't know how, but I realized that Fat Mary was me. And I had to make her my friend. So I made Fat Mary my friend. She, be, she became the part of me that you do not see. She became my counselor and my consoler. I had wonderful talks with her. We analyzed everything. She loved me. She listened to me unconditionally. And I found she was me. It, it's only I. No one would know about Fat Mary unless I let them in, unless I told them but Fat Mary was my constant companion, and she helped me survive so many things, and she's with me until today, because Mm -hmm. actually, Mm -hmm. she will end when I end, because she is me. Like I said, she's the part of me that people cannot see, but it's the most important aspect of who I am. She's not um, necessarily my alter ego. She's not my imaginary friend. She is, me, the me that I am. If I see someone, I see they wear a hat, they wear a blouse, maybe high heels, they carry a purse and walk along, and they give me their name. Do I really know the person? I just know their outside features mm-hmm. and what they seem to tell me. But there's a part of that person that is very real. Maybe it's the divine. Maybe it's the soul that lives, you know. I lived in that place as a child and always because I had no choice.
0: I actually love what you're saying. Um, I, I think you're right. I, I sat was I was thinking about it. You answered what I was thinking. Like, what aspect is it? But it is your. I'm just going to call it your essence. You, you, you manage to. Uh, uh, I don't know. You know. Sometimes you say things like, "Well, they might be able to do all of that, but they will never get me because me or I is deep inside there." And this yeah. is a loving aspect of yourself, a supporting aspect. And so maybe it is the soul, yeah.
2: I, yeah, that is I, the you know that is where I felt I could always go to to be to feel good to be accepted to 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 converse as an equal and not always be called stupid. I know I asked so many questions as a child because I was very precocious and probably intelligent and there were so many things that really upset me and I would ask questions. So as a result of that the girls and the big girls and the nuns just called me stupid because they said if you knew the answers you you know, you wouldn't be asking so many questions. You're just so stupid. And so I went to Fat Mary, and and she always found my questions to be interesting, and she answered them, and we helped, and she helped me survive, and and go out there. And I always knew, no matter what, that I would be accepted there, and I was wanted there. It was my place of refuge, which helped me go, get carried away, and do what I had to do.
0: Yeah, it was it supported you? Yeah, a a place See, of. A, uh, I I sometimes call it a soft place to land. We all need that. Yeah,
2: we need that. Yeah, we. Have I, I have think that. so, and we really didn't have anything. And you know, as I was asking questions, I would ask all these people. You know, my my the other orphans. I would when you know I would cry when something hurt when someone. Uh, called me a, a bad name or whatever. And I would ask some of the girls so uh, often, I said, uh, aren't you upset when, when they call you children of sin? Aren't you upset when they call you, you know, you you, you are half, which means you will never be whole? Uh, we were told those things all the time. And I would ask the, the other girls, and they looked at me like I was truly crazy or truly stupid, because who cares about those things? We have a place to eat, we have food to eat, we have a place to sleep. I was just so stupid and living in a world that I was also called crazy. So you questioned
0: things or you thought yes, about it. I
2: questioned things. a lot and and I had no answers. So by necessity I had to invent Fat Mary.
0: Yes. Yeah. I I I understand that. It's um I, I do, I get it. Um as a Multiracial child in East Africa. Were, were you accepted by the African children? And and correct me if I'm inc- if I'm wrong here, but in the orphanage, were, was everybody multiracial?
2: Yes, okay. most of them were. It was the orphanage was created for what they called us mixed race, but as you saw in the book, they had a whole bunch of names for us too. Uh, yes, uh, the Africans in general, they. They were not, you know, quite as bad as in treating us and looking down on us. But the Africans, for some reason, they developed this uh, this language. They developed this. Uh, I'm forgetting the word I want to say that that we because we were mixed race, we thought we were better than them. So they they treated us very badly. They said, because your skin is a little bit lighter, you look like the Wazungu, the white people. So you think you're better than us. So they ostracized us. They did not they did not uh, invite us to their things. They, uh, they they just looked at us as though we thought we were better than them. But this is some of the things that we inherited, you know, from colonialism, when they come down telling you that, that the white, the lighter the skin, the better the person. And I see that carried on a lot in America, too. You know, you are high yellow, you are brown, or you are pitch black, you are night. You know, that kind of different degrees of blackness has been part of the black heritage, and and I I experienced it in Africa, but we, as mixed-race children, I don't think we, at least I never for one moment thought I was better than anybody else. I always felt, because of Fat Mary, that I was okay, I was as good as everybody else, but even though my whole environment and everybody told me I was not wanted, I didn't fit, I was a child of sin, I never felt I was better than anyone. So Africans, they discriminated against us in that way, but, but it was brought on by their own thinking that we thought we were better than them, and nine mm-hmm. times out of ten we did not. We felt so inferior.
0: That is uh, such a powerful point um, because what, what other people think, you know, like they're saying, this is what you think. And you're like, no, I wasn't thinking that at all. It was coming from them. But de- yes. definitely um, created the, the uh, uh, platform for the way that they treated you. It's interesting. We're going to take a little station break. This is Loretta Brown. My guest today is Maria Nambu, and she is just an amazing woman. Her Dancing Soul Trilogy, Africa's Child, America's Daughter, Drum Beats, Beautiful, beautiful work. Wonderful work. You should read it. And uh, we're going to talk more about it when we come back. Don't go away.
1: Energy is powerful, it's all around us, mysterious, full of potential. Directing positive, healing energy to raise your vibrational rate through Reiki can change your life. Reiki master Loretta Brown has relieved stress, sadness, anger, and even helped clients lose weight, stop smoking, and end sleep disorders. Worldwide, people have sought out Reiki Oasis. If you want help with your dis-ease, visit ReikiOasis.com. Harness life's energy. Visit ReikiOasis.com today.
3: To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov drugdisposal.
2: On the path to good health and well-being, Alternative Talk 1150 is the station for you.
0: I love that music. Love it. Benny, you're a
1: magician. It's from the uh, the movie Power of One. I don't know if you've ever oh,
0: seen. It. No, yeah, I apartheid.
1: haven't. It's uh, based upon the apartheid and so forth like that. Is so, it? Yeah, it's a wonderful it's film. I like it. It's Hans it's Zimmer fun. did the soundtrack. So, yeah, you, I see you're writing it down. I'm it down. down. No, Power I, of One. I, Look it up.
0: You know that rang a bell in me. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna listen. I'm gonna watch it. Good times. Anyway, welcome back to the original Loretta Brown Show. I'm the owner of Reiki Oasis. You can find out all about me at reikioasis.com, Facebook.com/slash The Loretta Brown Show, or Facebook.com/slash Reiki Oasis, right? My guest today, Maria Nambu, and we are talking about her amazing memoir, The Dancing Soul Trilogy. I love her memoirs. I was so touched, so deeply touched by your story in so many ways. Um, as I was saying in the earlier part of the show, I think it's because it's so human, Nambu. It's so human. We go through mm-hmm. so much of it.
2: Yeah. Can I say something about that? Yes, you can. Yeah. Um, you know, I was... Would- Petrified of writing because I would say I said to myself it would sound like a two year old you know English is not my language what do I think I'm doing you know I I really had so much you know insecurity and all but then you know I something just clicked for me and I said I, I'm I'm always known for just speaking from from my heart I, I and I always say, because I don't know any other way. Uh, but uh, I decided I needed to to write my book from the emotional point of view. I realized that intellectually we all have different capacities. Some are geniuses. Some some have issues. Some you know we all have different intellectual capacities. But emotionally, we all know what it is to be in love, to be fearful, to be afraid, mm-hmm. to be abandoned. You know, to we we all know to feel. Joy and and to to just be present and to to smell the sweetness of the flower. All of the emotionally, emotionally we're all the same. Where the anger that you feel, whether you're born in America or you're born in Africa, is the same. Yeah. The the sorrow that you feel when when your your parents die, no matter where you are born, whether in Europe in China, it's the same. So I decided to write my book from the emotional point of view because I really wanted people to hear me because I knew if I went from that point of view, I wouldn't have a problem because we are all human and we know exactly what those emotions are, whether it's written in a language and in a culture that you cannot relate to. does not matter. Emotionally, we are one.
0: Oh, that is so beautifully said. Um, That's beautifully said. I have... um I've had the—I um, don't know what you want to call it—the the opportunity to travel the world a lot, and I a long time ago realized we're all in the human condition, and we we all we all bleed, we all cry, we all laugh, we all love, we all hope, we all dream, right? And we all suffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, thank you. That that said it very very clearly. Um, I want to talk a little bit about. Um, the village mothers in your first book you talk a lot about wanting a mother and mm-hmm. a little bit about the Africans, the village mothers and African dancing.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um <clears throat> one in you know as I told you in the orphanage, not everybody was an orphan. There are people who were who had parents but they brought them there because it was a place for us and it was rumored to have a really good school. So we were educated up to the fourth grade. But uh, you know, the uh, people who had mothers or of, of fathers, they went away for vacation, you know, for Christmas, for any kind of vacation. They went away. They had toys. They had lots of t- stuff brought for them. And I always wished when I saw their mothers come, I was always waiting. When is my mother coming? When is my mother coming? And then it looked like she was not going to come. So one time I just took things in my own hand and I decided I was going to find her. I was three or four years old. So I walked down to the village, and because the orphanage was up on the hill it was surrounded by the African villages, and uh, there was, we could always hear dancing and singing and drumming, and there was always smoke coming from, from cook, cooking in some place. So I, I would sneak down to the village, thinking that my mother must be somewhere in the village. So when I went there the first time, there were three women, and they now I knew that they were really very, very old. They all had white hair, but I was four years old, and I was sure one of them was my mother. <laughs> so, so they're sitting there cooking, and I go to the first one, and I say, are you my mother? Uh, there was silence, and I said, okay, then the second one, she must be, are you my mother, I was asking and i came to the third one and i said then you are my mother and without missing a beat a beat all three of them in unison said we are all your mother mm. there was something that happened to me that time that i still experience it was it was that connection that connectedness to the feminine spirit to the earth to belonging i felt i belonged to this women, just because they told me that they were all my mother. And I completely accepted it, that today yes, they were all my mother. Like, it's also known in Africa and in, in, in many ethnic cultures, you know, the whole village takes care of the kids, the extended family. We are all together. But I felt something, and uh, I just decided, yes, you know, I belong, I felt good. It really helped me. So... I always went down to the village mothers, and when they were dancing, I would sneak out, sneak out after we'd been put to bed. I would be sitting, first of all, in my bed, and my feet were just all over the place. I was trembling, I was dancing, I couldn't sit. Okay. So I finally snuck out and went into the village and started dancing with the Africans. And they just love to dance. I was so, I admired so much how they danced, the African dancing, because we were in, overall forbidden to dance the pagan way. So And we're told if we wanted to dance, we had to learn the German waltz, which is what <laughs> we did. But of course, you didn't have drumming and fun like that. <laughs> So I went, I went down to the village and I learned to dance. And what I discovered the most, and I have never forgotten, when I saw the villagers dancing, is I, I realized there was no right way to dance. There was no wrong way to dance. There was only dance. And if you think you're dancing, you're dancing. I carried that with me and brought it to America. And that, that idea, that value helped me teach Americans all around the country that they can dance no matter what, because as long as you're present and you're expressing yourself and it's coming from within you, you can, you know, you can dance. So, dancing was a very, very big part of my survival as a child. You know, dancing and Fet Mary, and then I also realized I needed an education. So, those three things I felt really helped me and I took them upon myself because nobody. You know, I knew nobody would do it for me. And I came to at some point to realize that I had to love myself because I wanted to live. I knew if I didn't love myself, since nobody loved me, I would die. So I, I made a point to find ways and means of surviving because I loved myself and I wanted to treasure myself.
0: You know, um, I was going to ask you, you know, because you're you're your trilogy here does take us through um, all of the things that life brings us. You've gone through a lot of, uh, I'm going to say, heartbreak and sadness, and you've been been—you've persevered. You have tenacity and resilience. You have hope, and I, I think you just gave me the key right there that you, you figured out you had to love yourself because you wanted to live. You wanted, you wanted life you're saying yes to life at some big level and maybe that's self love yeah, self-love. yeah. I, I sometimes think the biggest thing we can do is 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 allow ourselves to be who we are and that's not easy people around us don't want that right
2: mm mm-hmm. mhm yeah yeah it was and 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 to accept yourself, you know, the way you are. If I didn't accept myself as a child, I don't think I would have survived because... I I saw that that I was uh I was special I was a human being there was some divinity within me and uh and I decided you know to love it because it seemed like the whole world did not love me and and if they did not how could I have survived and I I believe we we really can I I think that like my my book 3 I always, you know I, at the end of book 3 the very last thing I say is when I'm in my home and I'm looking back at my life and how I've gotten here and, and how I have survived and thrived, I, I think I say that um, the, the greatest thing for me or, or of all was to bravely loving myself. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it is not easy, but you have to have that faith that if you really love yourself, you will be okay. And that's how I end the, the absolute last trilogy. You know, the last line, the last two words, three words in the trilogy is: "We should bravely love ourselves, no matter what it takes. Be brave. Be
0: brave. Yeah, absolutely. Bravely love yourself. I think you are definitely uh, exemplifying that. Um, I think we we probably should mention your adopted. Your Mother That Adopted You,
2: and that
0: changes from the first to the second book. Can you talk about um, the mother that adopted you?
2: (laughs) Yes, yeah, absolutely, because, uh, you know, you were talking earlier about the power of one, and uh, I always use her as the power of of one. You know, I, uh, as you know, the book goes on and on, but I was, chosen to go to a second, the first secondary school for girls in the country, and uh, it was run by American Maryknoll sisters, who were like night and day from the German, you know, Catholic nuns. <laughs> and they were also Catholic, but they, they the Maryknoll sisters, but they were no German. Nothing, you know, I have nothing against the Germans, because deep down they made me who I am. When, yes. Whenever I think of my self-discipline, I thank my German nuns. Um, But uh, they had this school, uh, it was a secondary school, and a lay teacher came from Onamia, Minnesota, to come and devote one year, to volunteer one year of her life to teach at this school where I was a a senior in high school. Uh, They needed an English teacher. So she came and she became um, uh, one of my English uh, teachers, and, you know, Somehow on her own, she she learned about me. and She learned that I had no place to go after school. All schools were boarding schools. You we were at school for 10 months, and then you went back for holidays to your home. She knew that I would be going back to the orphanage because I had no other home. So I don't know what she did. She moved mountains, and she did whatever she had to do. You you learn all of, all of that in the book, but she found a way to actually adopt me. And bring me to america even though she was only four years older than me (laughs) i was 19 she was you know 23 and and like i said the power of one what she did you know she she did absolutely everything and she was not rich she she her her mother had died when she was young her father you know living alone and he was getting older she was an only child she didn't wait until somebody wrote the manual of how to adopt a 19-year-old basket case African woman and when you're only 23 and bring them to America. She didn't wait. I always say I thank God she didn't think it through because everything would have been against her. But she saw me. I always say I was trying to understand it. I think she saw me with her heart. She didn't see me you know, with her mind. She saw me with my, her heart, and, and she could empathize, and she felt no matter how little— she could do, she could do something. She couldn't just walk away. So we have really good friends. I, I you know, she became like my mom, although she's only four years old and my kids call her call her grandma. I never referred to her as mom. I always call her by her first name and we are really good friends and that is the reason I go to Minnesota all the time to to see her and to spend some quality time with her.
0: I think and it's she- marvelous. Yeah. Go
2: ahead. Yeah, yeah you no, know, because people always think that, you know, in adoptions, of course, we always prefer young kids, you know, babies that, you know, who can come to our family and we can form them and they become a part of our culture, of, of our family system. But there are many older kids also who need to be adopted. And especially, I mean, me, I mean, I am was a really pathetic case from another country and, and already 19 year old. I don't know what what it took for her to decide she was going to adopt me no matter what. So I, I always say that for in adoption, you just you have to look at people with your heart and see a need. And somehow the universe makes it happen and he provides. Because Kathy really had nothing nothing she didn't have a big house she didn't have anything she was she came from a very small town a population 500 you know up by millax lake minnesota she i mean to me when i got there her whole life whatever she had was the world i had never seen so much wealth and then only now i realized that it, it wasn't she didn't have that much she just saw a need And she decided she could do something. She didn't start out saying she would give me the world. She just started out saying, I will help her. I will give her a chance.
0: And, of course, that changed everything because um, uh, without giving too much spoiler alert, because I want people to read your books, because you had another offer. (laughs) which We'll we'll just leave that on the table. Let them figure that one out when they read your book. You had another (laughs) offer.
2: And I, yeah. I say the hand
0: of God stepped in and said, "No, we're going to go this way, right?" Yeah,
2: absolutely. <laughs>
0: Thank you yeah. to God and the angels that you know helped you get to America. Um, I yeah. also understand that when you got to the Amer- uh, America, the United States, one of your biggest challenges was um, uh, being black. That the Americans stopped. yeah is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Continue.
0: Oh no! Please, you go. You finish. You go. All right. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, I was surprised too, <laughs> because when I there's a chapter in the book which is called "Becoming Black." Well, I was surprised when I came to America, all of a sudden I became black. Well, and then people say to me, oh, "Oh, oh, come on! Have you looked in the mirror recently? You are, you are kind of black, you know." But <laughs> one day I actually went and I looked in the mirror, <laughs> you know, to see what they were talking about, and. I didn't see a black person. I just saw me. I just saw me. When, when, when you go and look at yourself in the mirror, do you see a white person? Do you see a Chinese person? Whoever that person is, don't you just see you? So I was really confused. But yet, in reality, I knew that the, the American public saw me as a black person, so, and I knew nothing about the black culture. I started to learn about them, because I was, you know, when in Rome you do as the Romans do. I wanted to fit in in the worst way. I wanted to be black. I wanted to be, so the only problem came is that when they had all these expectations, just because I was black, they kind of knew everything about me and my history, you know, which was the history of the the black Americans here. And I couldn't, I I didn't know anything of that. We hadn't even studied slavery in Africa. I didn't even, I was just that out of it. But somehow, when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated and we were in college, the discussion all of a sudden went went around, and someone turned around and looked at me up then said to me, "Well, what do you people want anyway and Because there were riots and all and 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 I turned around to look for you people and that's when I found out that I was you people uh-huh. so There were many realizations that came out to me that uh, people didn't see me as a human being or even as a person from Africa. They saw me as a black person and everything else they associate with being black, which didn't work for me because I I was not that kind of a person, only my skin. So I realized that I was judged by the color of my skin. Very, Mm -hmm. very early, I realized that.
0: Yeah. We have um, so much to cover and... so little time i gotta tell you it you, you so i'm just gonna synopse a little bit for the listeners um in your second book you go into um getting married having children and finally creating that family that you so wanted and somewhere along the line you actually find your birth mother how old were you when that happened
2: i was 36 yes and she came looking for me and i
0: think you make a comment in there that you know when you grew up of course the the birth mothers that came to visit were all black right and you had a white mother
2: Yes, I was so surprised to find out, you know, I always tell the story, we went to the airport, Kathy told me, you know, that my mother had written her, and she, my birth mother and me are going to the airport, we're told what she was wearing, and all, we, all gone, I was anxious, and I was waiting, I was waiting, I looked at every black woman that went by to see, but they were not wearing anything, and then this white woman comes, I had the shock of my life, I mean, I really didn't, and I, as you know, I began the book with talking, really having conversations with baby Jesus. All of a sudden I said, huh, now I understand why baby Jesus couldn't find her. I was looking <laughs> for an African mother. <laughs> it never occurred to me that she was going to be, you know, so I made lots of excuses for baby Jesus, okay? Okay. But, uh, it, you know, there's humor in, in every other way, it, it, every time I look at it, because I was so off in so many ways about who my mother would be. And she turned out she was a, a nice woman. I I was glad she came to look me up so that I had closure in that area. But we were like night and day. We were very, very different people.
0: And then uh, as you go forward in the third book, you actually find your father. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. You and My mother. my my mother introduced me to a half brother who was all white, who was raised in Africa, and then uh, when my mother died, our mother died, he was like eight years older than me. He he said that he really felt responsible that we should go to Africa to look for my father because we asked our mother, she told us absolutely nothing. She didn't say anything. She didn't want to. So after she had passed, about three years, my brother and I went to Africa to look for my father. And that whole chapter to me, I, I always laugh because we had no clue. We were going to a country of 35, 40 million people and thinking we were going to find someone who lived there 45 years ago. <laughs> but somehow, you know, miracles do happen, and we did find him.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's beautiful. It's a beautiful part of your story. Yeah. Um, We have just a couple minutes, but could you touch on aerobics with soul? I think we need to mention that.
2: Absolutely. Uh, You know, when I was pregnant with my son, who is now 42, I gained like 60 pounds, and uh, that was in the 60s and 70s. And uh, the dance exercise craze was coming, in. I went to workout and all, and I remember hating every minute of it. All the sit ups, all the leg lifts. I, I kept saying there got to be something better, and then I realized. That, <laughs> <laughs> then I realized I had my African dancing, so I went back to my music. I put on the music and I danced and I did all of that, and I, I, I just danced. I put music and danced the way I did in Africa, but then I took it all and I. I made it more or less formal. I had a uh, I I I followed the guidelines of the American fitness industry. I had a warm up and aerobic section and a cool down and I put it all together. It was all based on African music, African dancing and I tried to put in a lot of African culture too and I invited people to come. Eventually it really people really liked it and so I ended up training instructors and teaching all over the country, uh, and I'm still doing it. I taught for 25 years. Every year, once a year, as a specialty instructor at Rancho La Puerta in Mexico, and I've been going all over the world teaching it, but it was mostly me taking the African dancing and, and sharing with people. I always felt that African culture was a spectator culture. People were always mm-hmm. watching us. You know, I want to say, you can participate, you know, so let's dance. I wanted them to participate and, and get to know us from how we are and how we move and what is human about the, the our emotions, how we, we share and express our emotions through dance.
3: Yeah. And
2: that is the part thing I really wanted them to share, that they can go within themselves to express their feelings with everyone there.
0: I love it. So my guest today, this is Loretta Brown. My guest today, Maria Nambu. You definitely want to get her Dancing Soul Trilogy, Africa's Child, America's Daughter, Drum Beats, Heartbeats. I know you can get them on Amazon.com. And uh, uh, Nambu, what
2: is your website? My website is marianambu.com
0: great and um i just uh, thank you so much thank you so much blessings love to you from my heart to yours and um i hope you're going to get those aerobics with soul out there you just put them back out you know people will
2: love it (laughs) yeah (laughs) i just might you know but sometimes age happens you know
0: (laughs) somebody needs to make a movie of your life by the way thank you so much for being on the show bye everybody we'll see you next week